Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. This war in Ukraine at 20 weeks, four months. Who's winning? What's working? Do we get it yet? Can you read a scorecard on a grain war? Arguably an insane war, a proxy war, a war to revalidate war as a way to decide things, a war that doesn't know how to stop itself, a war that was nearly negotiated away just before it broke out, a war in which nobody now is calling for ceasefire or talks. How much trouble has Ukraine been drawn into? How much can Ukraine take? This is the wrap-up Hour 20 in a broadcast podcast series in collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We'll be testing the Quincy watchword of restraint in foreign policy before the hour is done, and we'll get the tart Russian-American commentary of Nikita Khrushchev's great-granddaughter on the Russian and American histories hanging over the players today. We begin with the dauntless Jeffrey Sachs, development economist and lifelong troubleshooter at large, with the blessings of Pope Francis and the United Nations, Jeff Sachs led a conference on Ukraine at the Vatican two weeks ago and issued a global call for peacemakers. I asked him for the short form of his study. This war never should have occurred, and this war can be stopped. And the point of the working group that the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network brought together is that this is a war that is provoked by a contest between two big powers, the United States and Russia. It is really a, a war over Ukraine. The truth is neither side should have Ukraine. Ukraine should be an independent, sovereign, and neutral country. Probably Russia wants uh, domination over Ukraine. On the other hand, uh, the United States wants Ukraine as a military ally. That's too close for comfort to Russia. There's a lot more to it, Chris. But basically, when this group got together, they said both sides need to pull back. We don't need Ukraine to be the ultimate proxy war between two nuclear superpowers. We need some space and some prudence. So that's the long and the short of it, which is till this moment, there has not been negotiation. In fact, every day is the statement, Russia needs to be defeated. We will win on the battlefield, says Ukraine, even as so many people are dying, Ukraine cities are being leveled. And what had begun as an off-ramp to real negotiation in late March was basically turned off by U.S. and U.K. pressures and advice. And uh, since then, negotiation hasn't even been part of the rhetoric. The urgent fundamental mandate that your committee brought out of the Vatican was go back to the negotiation that came within a whisker of averting this whole war at the beginning, which was basically make Ukraine neutral, get the Russians out, clarify some of the Eastern rights, but basically get on now with reconstruction. 
That could be called favorable to the Russians, but not even the Russians have embraced it. To me, the great mystery is where did the urgency, the common sense of that recommendation go? The real fact is the U.S. does not want to talk about plank one of the way out of this, which is Ukraine's neutrality. That is the core point that the U.S. has rejected. Mm. We don't really understand uh, exactly what's happening because what we saw at the end of March was actually documents being exchanged and three parties, Russia, Ukraine, and the mediator, Turkey, all saying we're making rapid progress. Then suddenly the progress stopped. Suddenly the line changed. Suddenly we had Lloyd Austin, our defense secretary, uh, we had the British government every hour saying, no, Ukraine will win on the battlefield. That was not the phrase of March. That became the phrase of April. And it's not evident even to those of us watching, unless you're inside the room or rooms. I don't know what happened, uh, but something ended the negotiations the Ukrainians said, we can't continue to negotiate. We won't. Anyway, we won't negotiate till we push Russia out of the conquered territories. And so it basically ruled out negotiations as a path to quick peace, saying that peace will come on the battlefield. It won't come via negotiations, except for the footnote that says, once we push them out, then we will negotiate a final peace. Well, this is not exactly seeing diplomacy as an alternative to the battlefield. It's saying that the battlefield comes first. This is a strange and unfortunate choice, hard to understand. If one's watching the actual battlefield, Ukraine loses ground pretty much by the day. Ukraine risks becoming a, a landlocked rump of its former self with Russia continuing to advance not only into Lugansk and Donetsk, but all across the Black Sea littoral, which now stretches to Kherson and, uh, of course, to Crimea, but possibly beyond, because who knows whether Russia stops there or decides to advance to Odessa, which it has been shelling. And the idea that, well, uh, Ukraine is going to win on the battlefield I don't know. Uh, it seems each day that that claim, for what it's worth, is uh, coming at the cost of unbelievable destruction and loss of life. And all I can say is, uh, well, I don't know whether it's feasible or true or not true. But what I do know, Chris, is I'm 67 years old now, and I've heard that line from the United States government in innumerable wars. And I don't believe what the United States government says about these issues because having lived through mm. Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and Nicaragua and Iraq twice and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya and many, many more, call me a skeptic. But I don't believe it and I don't see it on the battlefield. Where is the dissent, Jeff, even in Ukraine and in our country, but in the world? This to me is a great mystery. Where is a single statesman out there calling for negotiations in this war? Basically, Pope Francis and uh, President Erdogan of Turkey and uh, once in a while, 
Chancellor Schultz, President Macron, and Prime Minister Draghi. But when they say it, they're attacked and they retreat from it. So essentially, nobody in political leadership right now. Everybody in their rhetoric is out to prove how tough they are, how much they hate the other side, uh, how much they're out to defeat the other side. Mm. We should remember that uh, this isn't the only front that the United States uh, is engaged in right now. The United States is engaged in a trade, technology, and rhetorical battle with China, which is also extraordinarily dangerous. And the United States can't even throw a party for our own neighborhood. We had a so-called summit of the Americas, but our diplomacy, in my view, is so pathetic because it's aimed more at division than at unity that eight countries in the Western Hemisphere did not attend the summit. Three, because uh, the U.S. said, you're not invited. And the other five that said, well, if our friends are not invited, we're not coming. So the United States couldn't even throw a block party for our own neighborhood without creating division. This is our world right now. I don't get it why they're trying to create division in Asia, why they're trying to create divisions basically everywhere by saying the old expression, either you're with us or you're against us. And this is not the right approach for a world that has enough troubles besides the ones that we're concocting. Jeff Zach. I've only known you 40-some years. You've always been at the center of not only national economic debate, but international crises, including the collapse of the Soviet Union. You're an inside character who finds himself, astonishingly to me, outside what's happening, and neither of us seem to understand how we got here. Well, Chris, I can tell you, my career dates back 42 years now. I was proud that I was an American economist at a time when America could help to solve problems. My proudest moment was uh, in 1989, helping the solidarity movement in Poland and helping the new democratic government of Poland to uh, become a a democracy and a functioning economy after uh, the end of the Soviet domination. I've been involved in issues uh, for the last 30 years on many, many different fronts of international economics, from disease control, including chairing a commission on COVID, and countless issues of development finance and many international economic crises and so on. HIV in Africa in George Bush's time? HIV in Africa and climate change for the last 20 years on a nearly daily basis in one way or another. And I've watched the United States lose its coherence, lose its sense of perspective, lose its capacity to deal with the rest of the world, but I have to say also lose its capacity to be effective domestically as well. So the situation has worsened, not only in the international side, but also in the domestic side. It's very sad, but this is a long story of a deterioration of U.S. politics and U.S. diplomacy. And they have gone hand in hand. We are confused Mm. abroad. We are stoking terrible crises that we're absolutely not even aware that we're stoking We are unable to solve problems diplomatically, internationally, but we're also unable to solve 
political problems at home. And so what we're experiencing really is a, a national crisis that has many dimensions, but I've seen it in my career because I've seen the difference. I can remember, I'm old enough to remember uh, when the U.S. could be effective on problem solving, and I know how long it's been since we've really played that constructive role. Jeffrey Sachs, thank you for your report. Thank you for speaking to us about it. Chris, it's always great to speak with you, and uh, let's hope we don't have to do this over and over again and that we actually see some progress in the coming days. Coming up, Russian history, the dark side, past, present, maybe future. This is Open Source. Nina Khrushcheva has unmatched credentials teaching international affairs at the New School in New York. There's the Khrushchev family name to begin, but then a searching memory of the history and folklore in her blood and a gift for straight talk about all of it. I asked her if she saw a turn coming in the war in Ukraine. One day it looks like it's a turn and another day it does not look like a turn at all. Even in the United States, you can hear, at least just a few weeks ago, a few months ago, there was a sentiment that Russia needs to lose and Ukraine needs to win. And now the conversation more is that we have to provide Ukraine with better options for negotiations. So the word negotiations is coming up uh, more and more and more. Yesterday, the three European leaders, as Donald Rumsfeld once called them, the old Europe, went to Kiev and um, spoke in great support of Vladimir Zelensky, offered weapons, but also offered membership or candidate membership in the European Union, which could be seen as the sort of diversion from war to potentially negotiating position. Of course, you said that it's a horrible situation and war is messy. War is unpredictable. I mean, we remember March 31 when it seemed so close, the meeting between the Russians and Ukrainians in Turkey. It seemed so close to come up with some sort of a solution. And then a few days later, it was over. Now the Russians saying very firmly that they are going to go until the final goal is achieved. And, you know, the only one person who can say the final goal is achieved is Vladimir Putin. And he is in a stronger position today, despite all the sanctions and everything, than he was three months ago. Nina, we'll come back to the present, but history hangs over this whole thing. In the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, your great-grandfather was cast both as the arch-villain and then as co-hero of the story. In the Khrushchev family, what's the wisdom 60 years later about his role and the lessons? Right. Well, I mean, in American propaganda, of course, he was a villain because I do agree with Vladimir Putin on that, that if you are not following the American party line, you're going to be vilified no matter what. So Khrushchev, incidentally, like Putin, wanted a parity. I mean, he, unlike Putin, never planned to use any weapons, didn't want war, was very deliberate in explaining to uh, John F. Kennedy that all of this is to make sure that the United States understands that we are the Soviet Union and not chopped liver. So in this sense, he did overplay his hand. I mean, you can call him a villain or you can just say that he really found no other way to make a point to the United States than to put missiles in Cuba because American missiles or NATO missiles were all around the Soviet Union at the time. But what's really making it completely not 
comparable to the today's situation anymore is that once he realized that the stakes are very high and humanity is in danger and the European continent is in danger and the world is in danger, he immediately backed off. And let's remember that it took them, both Kennedy and Khrushchev, to unwind the crisis in 13 days. We are now in the fourth month. So in this sense, we are way beyond the Cuban Missile Crisis, and those comparisons, I'm afraid, are no longer valid. No, the saving grace of the Cuban Missile Crisis, though, was that it changed both of those players. We learn now that they were both scared stiff of the use of nuclear weapons. But it also moved them, eventually, those two men, to try to end the Cold War. And it provoked John Kennedy's greatest speech at the American University in 1963, when he talked about getting to know the Russians finally, their long history. What would Nikita Khrushchev be seeing in this replay? I'm asked this question all the time. I really don't know. I mean, he was a Kremlin leader, and as a Kremlin leader, Moscow takes all. On the other hand, he was a very fond kind of honorary citizen of Ukraine because he worked there most of his life as the head of the Communist Party on various levels. He probably would be mortified to see that Ukraine is being completely destroyed to nothing because this is Ukraine that he helped to build after World War II in 1945, or even before 1945 when it was liberated from the Nazis. So I don't know. I mean, he could become a Soviet take-all or he would be on the side of Ukraine saying, well, why are we destroying this small country that just the only thing it wants and it wants its own, its own existence and independence? He was very big on Ukrainian identity in many ways. So I cannot say one way or another. You've written that he loved Ukraine and even got into a little trouble with Stalin for his devotion to Ukraine, everything about it. What is the chance that a leader like Khrushchev could have sided with Ukraine, could have really embraced Ukraine? That's what I'm saying. It could be that Kremlin takes all, or it could be Ukraine is a small independent country, no threat to the big bad wolf or good wolf Kremlin or the big Russian bear, and therefore why are we slaughtering it to pieces? Absolutely, and I can easily see him citing, and in fact, actually interesting, he did have a trouble with Stalin, especially after World War II, when he was saying, you know, Ukraine deserves to keep some of its crop and everything has to be taken out of Ukraine to feed the rest of the Soviet Union, because what about them? And in fact, I was just uh, watching some Russian TV for education and stumbled on a program in which the Ukrainian nationalism was discussed. The origins of the Ukrainian nationalism was Nikita Khrushchev, because he was not on the Soviet side. He was already then Mm. on the Ukrainian side. So he's a villain now in this regard. So I suggest, I assume he might be Uh, at least in the Kremlin mind today, he would have sided with Ukraine and therefore he has to be criticized already. You know, you emphasize that just two days before the military invasion, February 24th, they were close to a deal and it got away somehow. I don't understand yet. What was Putin ready to give up? What would he have settled for? How close was it? I didn't think he was close to a deal. That's not what I was saying. Hmm. Many agree that the United States being a gunfighter nation itself and kind of gun-ho was baiting the Russians, not because they necessarily wanted the war, but because this is just part of the 
American thing is that, you know, we see injustice and we immediately go and guns blazing and whatnot. So let's just mm. tell Putin how more horrible he is than he really is. And so that was, of course, for autocrat like Putin and people around him, uh, and he's a macho man, that's an insult. That's an incredible mm. insult. So he had to do something. So I expected that he would have to, because of his own macho pride, because of people around him, the strong man, in order not to show weakness, he would have to recognize those republics, Donetsk and Luhansk republics, self-proclaimed republics. He would have to do something in response to the American uh, leaking of information and screaming mm. that it's going to happen anytime the invasion. So it wasn't a deal. It's just I thought he would recognize and then they would sit down because he would have a stronger cards in his hand saying, well, protect your Ukraine by making them sit down and agree on, say, the Austrian neutral treaty in, of 1955 or something like that, entering European Union rather than NATO and so on and so forth. And then somehow in the two days that just something went off the cliff, it seems like he decided there's no point of discussing anything anymore. And actually Putin today gave a speech at the St. Petersburg Economic Forum that at the first five minutes of the speech was all about how we try to do it differently, but the hegemony of the United States just left us no choice. And it does seem that that's on tw February 24th, that's exactly what happened, that somehow he just fell off the cliff of rational mind and turned into this absolutely dictatorial way of looking at things that my way or the highway. Wasn't it you, Nina, who said that Putin never wanted to make a deal, he wanted to make a point. And the point was that don't anybody mess with me or Russia about stuff we really, really want, starting with Crimea, also control of the Black Sea, and a free hand in bullying Ukrainians about their culture, their identity, their rights. He wanted to quash NATO's meddling on Ukraine's behalf. And when the West ignored him as if to defy him, he massed his troop on the border as if to say, I might just invade. My question is, could that man have made a deal, backed off? avoided this war? Yes. Look, history does know conditional tenses. We don't know. I don't think he believes in deals with the West anymore. Because as you remember, when Olaf Scholz very closely before the invasion happened, went to Moscow and said, well, we don't really mean ever to take Ukraine in, into NATO. We just have to say it. But we promise you, and Putin just laughed in his face. I mean, I don't know, literally, but he said, well, wait, wait a minute, you've been promising since 1990. So I think that cemented his idea that deals with the West is all going to be uh, broken and they're basically only for show, kind of in a Max Weber definition of the Protestant ethics is that uh, <laughs> the appearance of truth is as important as the truth. And Putin just didn't want to go with that anymore. But possibly, hard to say, because in, interestingly today in the forum, the St. Petersburg forum, on one hand, he was quite militant in saying, well, it's not our fault, but also quite conciliatory, which is an interesting combination. Nina, speak of the history that hangs over Vladimir Putin, but over us too. I'm also interested in the history yet to come and this shadowing all our future days. What's the burden of history on that man? Well, he is, as somebody, this is not my line, but I love it, a hobby historian, as we know. He likes culture or kind of the versions of culture that speaks to him. Uh, he's a great fan of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the mm. great writer who wrote The Gulag Archipelago, and even uh, more horrible philosopher who kind of explained that the 
soul of humanity or the soul of European continent lies in the pan-Slavic empire that collects the Slavic-speaking nationals of Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, and parts of Kazakhstan. So Putin just really took this kind of teachings to heart. Sounds like Dostoevsky, no? Yes, exactly. And I think in some ways, when Putin doesn't want to make a deal or didn't want to make a deal or decided not to make a deal, but makes a point. I mean, you know, the Western essentially now fighting not with with Vladimir Putin's Kremlin or something of the 21st century, but with the Dostoevsky soul, which is, you know, how do you really how do you really grasp that concept? So in some ways, he's really not that original. I mean, Stalin was a big. He even saw himself as those creator of Russian greatness on par with uh, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, but he would do it in real terms. So Putin mm. does, he sees himself as the descender of those greats, you know, the Vladimir the Great, the first, the baptizer of Kievan Rus in mm. the 1800s, then Catherine the Great and Peter the Great first, and Catherine the Great and Stalin and Koba the Dread, and now Vladimir Putin the Great. So history weighs very heavily on him, And for the Russians, I think it's important for still, I mean, Russia, even if it collapsed in 91 and shed a lot of territory, it's still an empire. I mean, it certainly has this imperial mentality that the state is most important. And so that history, I mean, Russians do talk about, you know, in the past, we were feared and respected and now look at us. And now under Putin, we're feared and respected once again. And, And it's important to them because it's a big country. It's a proud country. It doesn't want to be the rug under the Western feet. Or so they see themselves. And so in this sense, his historical narratives are supported. Remind us what your friend George Kennan might be saying about this crisis today. You were his last personal assistant and researcher. He was famous for containment. He was also famous for casting both a very loving and very suspicious eye on Russia in general. Yes, and he was, um, in fact, I actually have in my possession, which is a remarkable thing, I have his letter that he wrote to Strobe Talbot, under Secretary of State at the time in, in the 90s in the Clinton administration, saying the NATO expansion is a big problem. The Ukrainians and sort of the exercises of the Americans and the Black Sea with the Black Sea fleet in Ukraine is a problem because, of course, Russians will see it as an affront to them because, after all, the Sebastopol is the seat of the Russian naval glory. It's not the seat of the American naval glory. Imagining the American flag over it. I mean, it's an insult to Russian own sovereignty or Russian history or Russian uh, Russian anything. I mean, that was problematic. And so Cannon wrote a long letter explaining that. And then with I found those letters with a note to me saying, what do you think? <laughs> like as, if, as if it mattered. <laughs> what, what do I think? Uh, and he was warning. He actually, and I think he even wrote, he didn't, but I think Thomas Friedman wrote a piece in the New York Times quoting him, saying that the Russians will, re- I mean, this is the expansion is unnecessary, but I think it was 97 already. But the Russians would take it as a problem to them and will influence their political behavior. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. And so George Kennan would have said, look, when was I ever wrong about Russia? I'm sure he would have said that. That doesn't mean that even if NATO didn't expand, I mean, once again, we don't have conditional tenses. So we don't know what Putin would have done. But it does appear that George Kennan's warnings 
during very, very true and probably should have been listened to after that theory of containment that he created mm. in the 40s, his X article in 1947, the sources of Soviet conduct. So who should have been listened to but not George Kennan? Of course, he should have been. We invite him into our conversation every day. Nina, you were also part of Jeff Sachs's Vatican Peacemakers project to end this war. Do you agree with Jeff? And apparently... Pope Francis thinks so, too, that the key is guaranteed neutrality for Ukraine. What more is required here? I completely agree with that. And I was very honored to be part of this. And I had, I'm very proud to be a signatory to, to the document that was produced. Yes, absolutely. But some of us who were trying to kind of analyze and prevent this from happening in my own small way, I, I was going on a variety of shows and trying to say, well, maybe once again, Austria 1955, you know, the yes. Khrushchev doing, by the way, was I thought it was a great foreign policy success. And Vyacheslav Molotov, Stalin's foreign minister, was dead against it. And Khrushchev pushed it through in 55, and mm. it worked great. And so I think that would have been a great possibility. But once you start the rhetoric of war, the preparation for the war can be the reason for the war as much as some other conditions. So yes, today may be a little late because there are other considerations. And also let's remember that on February 24th, Russia occupied 30% of Donetsk and Luhansk regions only. Now it occupies 80% of those regions. The Kherson region part of the Zaporozhye region, Zaporizhia, as they say in Ukraine region, and then the Kharkiv region. So that's a lot of territory that is no longer under the Ukrainian control as bravely as they fight over it. So, you know, would Russia now agree to step back? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. What do your friends in Russia say? And does it matter to Putin what they are thinking? Yes and no. I mean, it matters what they're thinking. Otherwise, they wouldn't be this horrific, draconic laws that anything you say that is not according to the party line, it's 15 years in prison or you become a foreign agent or something, something, something. So basically, it's the absolute martial law in expressing public opinion. So yes, clearly it matters to him that he needs to present a vision that the whole Russian population is behind this. And they keep reminding us on TV that the whole Russian population or most of the Russian population is behind it. There are a lot of people who are against, a lot of people left. I mean, I think Russia, there is no official number, but probably over 300,000 people have left the country for now, maybe Mm. more now, which is a lot of brain drain. I mean, IT people, people in culture work, writers, journalists. So yes, it does matter. But at the same time, when you're pressing all the way that this is all the just and we didn't have any other choice, ultimately, you know, propaganda is total and that is a total propaganda on TV. And so it does affect your brain. And another thing, I mean, I hate to say it, but sanctions help too, because they're not just economic sanctions. They're basically destruction of you know, humanitarian society, whatever left of it, civil society, whatever left of it, because nothing, you know, when your Tolstoy is being thrown down the garbage drain, that is something that Russians do take personally. And that actually helps Putin's narrative that we are besieged fortress, the West hates us. And, you know, that's why we have to respond. So Russia is in a very difficult and in a very unclear 
position. And, you know, I can say that Ukraine, I don't know what kind of territory it was ultimately be able to keep, but it's going to rebuild and be whatever is left is going to be beautiful and wonderful. And I hope a lot of left beautiful and wonderful. But the uh, Russian future is, for me, is as dark as the Russian past. Nina Khrushcheva, thank you so much. It's a privilege to hear it from the Russian roots. <laughs> thank you very much. Coming up, a quick report to John Quincy Adams. This is Open Source. We're close to the end of our limited series, In Search of Monsters, a collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. We began last winter casting around for alternatives in American foreign policy. Almost instantly, Ukraine presented itself as a case study. Our guests, in a summing up, are the stalwart Quincy fellow Anatole Levin, who called in our first conversation for a neutral Ukraine to avert this war, and the founder-president of the Quincy Institute, Andrew Basevich. I'm sure people ask you, they ask me all the time, where is the peace movement, a peace movement, any peace movement? Where is the cry for ending a miserable war? Andy? Well, well, here where I live, I think that the uh, people have other concerns. You know, the inflation, price of gas, concern about the uh, paralysis of government at all levels, disunion, at least in the eyes of some people, the priority, the, the greater threat posed by matters such as uh, the climate crisis. I think all of these tend to take attention away from the war and therefore take attention away from your question. You know, where, where is the peace uh, movement? A, a wonderful writer you know, and I don't well, Andy, is named Mary Dujak. She had a nice reading of... Joe Biden's words coming out of Afghanistan, a miserable moment, but he, he said, don't worry about terrorism. We do war over the horizon, too. Her point was that Biden meant missiles or drones, but his phrase, somewhere over the horizon, comes out of the American song, somewhere over the rainbow. That's where American wars take place. Don't worry about them. It's a magic place, far away. They don't have to bother the American people. This is how U.S. engagement becomes sustainable because it's made invisible, which sounded true to me and ominous. It's part of the reason, I think, that there's so little pressure in our politics, even now, to stop the killing in Ukraine. At least within establishment circles, which would include Biden and his administration and others in the Washington foreign policy circle, there is a felt need to demonstrate that the catastrophic end of Afghanistan does not signal the end of American primacy, does not affirm that America is a nation in decline. So what's going on here, I think, is on the part of the Washington establishment is we're, we're putting aside those bad memories about Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and so on. We're moving ahead. And what we are doing, they would argue, or, uh, or at least would think, what we are doing in Ukraine is restoring uh, our reputation, restoring our influence, restoring our clout. I think all of that is wildly misguided, but I think we have to factor that into our understanding of what's really going on here. Anatole Levin, your take. Yeah, I entirely agree with that. I mean, I would only like to add that, of course, I mean, pe people in the peace movement, the former peace movement, um, you know, and on the left have been quite rightly deeply shocked by the Russian invasion 
of Ukraine, yep. manifestly a criminal act. Um, and of course, the, uh, the, the atrocities that have accompanied it and the destruction, uh, e even though some of these at least have been, I think, considerably exaggerated by un, you know, insufficiently checked Ukrainian propaganda. Nonetheless, serious atrocities have undoubtedly occurred. I'd ask you both as historians, and you are historians, to look ahead to the world after the Ukraine war. I assume it's going to be a much more multipolar place. A lot of old authorities much diminished. China, a huge player, and maybe a post-American century. Why not, Andy? I mean, the world is going to want to move on. Well, I think we already have, there already exists a multipolar international order. In some senses, uh, the Ukraine war provides an excuse for, for ignoring that reality, for imagining that the unipolar order still exists, and that indeed by taking on Russia, even indirectly, uh, that we are somehow affirming or restoring our claim to global primacy. I mean, I, I have argued, I don't know if Anatole agrees, but it's only when we can get over uh, these misleading, obsolete notions of our role in the world that we can then begin to seriously take on the actual challenges that are part of the 21st century. We could disagree on the priorities, but most of us would say, yeah, the climate crisis is a big deal. The rise of China is a big deal. The dysfunction of the American political system and divisions within American society, these are big deals. And those things are not going to be corrected by a war that pits us even indirectly against Russia. I'd like to ask you about a sensitive subject for me, for all of us, I think, which is the, the restraint idea in world politics and military policy. It's not been a good season for any sort of restraint, Andy. And I wonder how we, what we make of that. What would John Quincy Adams be observing about this nation that does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy and that thinks twice before any sort of military, much less foreign military move? I mean, how are we feeling about the the net impact of this year? Well, I would say that the uh, Ukraine war in many respects affirms the imperative uh, for a foreign policy based on restraint. The imperative, but, but the practicality, the possibility? John Quincy Adams favored effective, vigorous, creative, imaginative diplomacy. Yep. Uh, I don't know that the diplomacy uh, that uh, preceded the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, exhibited any of those of those qualities. And so I would argue strongly, <laughs> matter of fact, the, the depth of the catastrophe that is unfolding and the fact that, well, maybe not the fact, the claim that, my claim, uh, that this war could have been avoided had we had more effective diplomacy, makes the case for restraint as a principle of, of foreign policy. But I'd very much like to hear uh, Anatole's uh, views on this. My view has always been, and, and you know, I, that's why I argued for this very, very strongly in the months and weeks leading up to the war, that since 
as everybody has now acknowledged, and the Zelensky, President Zelensky has said, uh, NATO was not actually going to offer membership to Ukraine uh, in any foreseeable future. Uh, we could and should have uh, offered a treaty of neutrality. And since this was first on the list of Russian uh, official demands, if we had offered that, I think it um, it would have been very difficult or even impossible for Putin to have launched this war. Uh, the other point is that on the issue of the Donbass, uh, there was a very good agreement brokered by the French and Germans, backed by the United States, signed by Russia and Ukraine, about the peaceful reintegration of the Donbass into, into Ukraine on the only basis that that could ever have been possible, which was full autonomy within Ukraine. So yes, I mean, there, there was just con re repeated failures of diplomacy. But failures of diplomacy, I mean, rooted also in a profound lack of political courage and vision uh, at home. And I mean, that's what we've got to recover if we are you know, going to achieve now a peace settlement to end this war. The question is not the wisdom of restraint, or the, the, the possibilities in a neutral Ukraine. The mystery, and it's deeply disturbing to me, is why nobody picked it up, including the Biden administration. Zelensky did say early on he could go with neutralization. The press never picked it up. It never had a political voice in our country, Andy. And I'm wondering, what's the problem? The doubly interesting piece is that on restraint in general, it seems to be it's gaining conspicuously on the right in America. Tucker Carlson specifically is always talking about restraint and holding back. Donald Trump got one foothold in his original political campaign denouncing, really very personally, pointedly shaking his finger at Jeb Bush and said, your brother led us into a disastrous, maybe insane war in Iraq. But where else should we be hearing it? Maybe I could just add one thing. Uh, of course, restraint cuts all ways. If you want to find the strongest possible argument for restraint coming out of this war, it's um, the, the argument that Putin uh, made a catastrophic Absolutely. and criminal mistake by not exercising restraint true, and by true. invading uh, Ukraine. I mean, one of the greatest disasters, I think, in in modern Russian history, and due above all to a failure to observe restraint. Before we're done, I want to ask both of you, in a grim time, are the people we want to cite for getting it right in their thought or in their actions in this whole mess? Who, co who comes closest to doing the right thing in 2022? I mean, more broadly, America really needs to go back to a great generation of critics who emerged in America during the 1950s and 60s in reaction to McCarthyism and uh, also to the Vietnam War. People like Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who the theologian and international relations thinker, who were passionate opponents of communist totalitarianism. But also other names, you know, Richard Hofstadter, for example, C. Van Woodward, but were also acutely aware of the dangers of a combination of American nationalism 
and moral self-righteousness and that this this mood of moral superiority and fanaticism could you know both lead america itself into terrible disasters and crimes but also make it impossible for uh, america to seek uh, you know pragmatic uh, agreements and compromises with other countries and i think that these these are the um very much the lessons that that we need to go back to in in the context of the search for peace in Ukraine. Andy, I'd love you to cite a hero of 2022 if you have one, but then Reinhold Niebuhr is your guy. I want you to cite an article, small book, Reinhold Niebuhr, that everybody can read and be better for. Well, everybody should read uh, his 1952 volume, the irony of American history, yes, uh, yeah. which is, I, I don't, I, I mean, 150 pages long, quite ac- accessible, and to add to Anatole's point, uh, also emphasizes the the enormity of the danger posed by the idea of American exceptionalism, of our of our chosenness, of our special mission. Uh, major theme of the book, major theme of his perspective, whether it was a perspective on World War II, you know, warning against going too far, whether his opposition to the Vietnam War, warning that we had gone too far. You know, if if somebody said, what one book? Uh, The book Mm -hmm. is Niebuhr's The Irony of American History. But to the names Anatole mentioned, and, and those are good names, I think I would add a couple more more or less from the same era, one is uh, C. Wright Mills, uh, the great uh, sociologist, mm-hmm. whose uh, multiple books, but I think the one that affected me the most is The Power Elite, warning against the way, uh, sort of a condominium of corporate, political, military elites exercising power largely for their own purposes and thereby sacrificing the national interest. I think his analysis dating from the 1950s certainly pertains today. Another favorite of mine is Christopher Lash. Very difficult to put a label on Christopher Lash. Was he of the radical left? Was he of the right? He had a very unique perspective that managed to to draw from the best of of both sides. Those would be some of my, my heroes that I frequently go back to today. At the level of what we're really feeling, Anatole and Andy, how have our ambitions, how have our hopes, how have our directions in our own lives been changed by this war in Ukraine? I want to hear, especially from the Quincy Institute. I'm very proud to be the president of the Quincy Institute. It is a joy that we've had people like Anatole join our team. We're doing remarkably well in the short time, two and a half years, basically, that we've existed. On the other hand, and this is where Ukraine, I think, enters into the picture, it gives us an appreciation of the immensity of the task that we have undertaken. That task is to try to change the fundamentals of U.S. foreign policy, to help help the political elites recognize the folly of post-Cold War policies that have placed such a self-destructive emphasis on the use of military power to come to a better appreciation of the importance of diplomacy. Nobody 
at Quincy is going to say that somehow diplomacy is easy, you know, that we're just going to have a meeting and we're all going to sit down at a table and decide to stop fighting. But when you look at Ukraine, when you look at Afghanistan, our role there, when you look at our role in Iraq, by God, uh, there has to be an alternative to those kinds of horrifically wasteful uh, wars. And the Quincy Institute exists to try to define and promote those alternatives. Absolutely. I mean, I'm extremely proud to work for the Quincy Institute. You know, we do, uh, together with others, of course, but play an essential role precisely because as so many of these disasters, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, the run-up to the war in Ukraine, demonstrate that there is a, a terrifying degree of lockstep conformism in much of the establishment. And that, that's true in parts of Europe as well as in America, which has led us unthinkingly into really, really dangerous and unnecessary, you know, avoidable disasters. Uh, and, uh, of course, the risk that if we replicate some of these uh, attitudes and behaviours in our relationship with China, obviously a colossally more powerful uh, country than, than Russia, we could lead the entire world to cataclysm. So we have a profound duty, I think, to do our utmost to correct and try to, to prevent this. You have your assignments, gentlemen. For Open Source, <laughs> let me just say we have loved working with the Quincy Institute. Your team, your reading lists, Andy, and yourselves. 20 good shows in the bank here in collaboration with the Quincy Institute. Thank you. And happy Independence Day to you both and to all our listeners, too. Same to you. Thanks Thank a lot. You, Chris. Thanks, too, to Nina Khrushcheva, co-author of In Putin's Footsteps, and Jeffrey Sachs, whose books include The Ages of Globalization. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org and check out their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org, where you can find much more by Anatole Levin. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman, with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of independent podcasters. This week, try The Briny, where producer Matt Frassica explores how we're changing the sea and how the sea changes us. In the latest episode, Sea turtle conservationists build a distillery to keep their operation afloat. Find them at thebriny.net or wherever you go for podcasts.